Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. Jack, do you notice anything different about me? <laughs> well, <laughs> am, I, am I allowed to say that you don't look well? I guess I guess I guess you can edit that out if you, you don't want to run that. Are you okay? <laughs> well, I will admit that if I seem more positive than usual, there's a oh, reason. No. Everybody who attended my family holiday gathering came away with a little something extra this year. Oh, no. You were a super spreader event. Oh, no. Are you okay? I'm on the mend. I have to say that I am somewhat depleted in terms of my mojo, but hopefully that won't affect the quality of this episode. Oh, I'll bring extra mojo then to this episode. I... I thought I might need to, so I brought a little extra today. Well, we actually have a great episode, but before we get there, we have just a little housekeeping to take care of. We have a graduate student research contest coming up, and I thought that in order to really encourage people to apply, we should hear directly from last year's winner. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. My name is Patrick Conway, and I was the 2021 uh, grad student research contest winner on the Have You Heard podcast. My research relates to higher education in prison and the way we think about justifying support for such programs. I would definitely strongly encourage grad students to apply and enter the contest. Uh, I think oftentimes as grad students, we can feel like we're working in our own tiny corner of the world and question whether anyone really cares about the work that we're producing. Um, And so the contest for me was really an opportunity to reach a broader audience. Uh, And thankfully, Jennifer and Jack do a really excellent job of uh, exploring and presenting participants' research topics fully. Um, And that's not an opportunity that I think comes around all that often. And so it's something that I remain very grateful for the opportunity to participate in. To learn more about our graduate student research contest, just go to our website, haveyouheardpodcast.com. And if you want to go directly to that page, you can do backslash contest. Otherwise, just look for the contest tab. And you'll see there that the deadline is January 31st, 2022. But I think, Jennifer, in light of recent events, including um, health challenges being experienced by many, that we should extend that deadline by a couple of weeks. What say you, Jennifer, that we extend that to Valentine's Day? What a great idea. As someone who just loves graduate student research, this speaks to me like nothing else. That's right. So instead of giving us flowers and a box of chocolates this year, please send us your pitch. So it's a very easy contest to enter. All you need to do is send us a brief 200 to 300 word description of your research. And Even if you aren't chosen, we have heard from many, many entrants that just the process alone is incredibly valuable to them, that they learn so much about themselves as people, as scholars. Um, And this year, because of the Valentine's uh, deadline, as, uh, as romantic individuals. 
who is this person? Yeah, I, well, I'm bringing more mojo today. Oh, they, thank you, thank you. I really yeah. needed that. Anyway, to the episode. <laughs> so last year, we did an episode with four teachers around the country about what it was like to be teaching in the throes of a culture war. And I thought it would be really interesting to check back in with them and just find out you know, how they're doing and, and what life has been like since we last heard from them. And boy, was it eye-opening. Yeah, I would imagine eye-opening in a good way and in a bad way, right? Kind of the story of 2021. So taking stock here at the beginning of 2022, where are we? Uh, lots of stories of hope and resilience and also of defeats and burnout and people being worn down and pushed out. Uh, so this will be an interesting episode. Well, Jack, I know you're wondering what is my role going to be as Jennifer gallivants all over the country talking to these teachers? And I just want to assure you that I do have a little something special waiting for you. Oh, that's so sweet, Jennifer. I'm glad that you still think of me as the Oliver Twist character in this play. First up, we're headed to New York City, home to Selena Carrion. She's a fourth grade ELA teacher in the Bronx. And when I interviewed her for the show initially, what really stayed with me was how hopeful Selena was. She saw the pandemic and the waning of the era of standardized testing as an opportunity to reset education. Well, fast forward to the present, and she's feeling a little less hopeful. I was really excited that post-pandemic we would really be motivated to integrate a lot of the methods and, and, and the pedagogical practices that we had ho- always talked about doing prior to the pandemic. And right before school shut down, I had written a grant for, for the school to basically redesign our library and our technology room and kind of create this like 21st century learning commons is what we were calling it. And it was supposed to be this really just interactive, multimodal, like student-centered space. And everyone seemed really just jazzed and excited about it. It was something that was put on pause by the city who was granting the funds because of the pandemic. But I thought as soon as schools seemed like they were going to open back up, we were going to have the opportunity to kind of hit the ground running. And instead, it just seemed as if like we had taken multiple steps backwards. Spoiler, there is no library, which means there's no librarian either. And for Selena, that door of possibility that felt like it opened just a crack back in 2020 now feels like it has slammed shut. So the library went from essentially like the space that was going to bring the school forward into like the future and kind of transform the ways like students were learning and teachers were teaching into essentially they decided to shut down the space when schools opened up this past September. And I was supposed to be the librarian. I was supposed to be transitioning to taking over that space. And it just felt really jarring, especially on top of the fact that we had gotten just this huge surplus of all this school funding from the federal government on top of the funding that we were typically slated to receive. So it just didn't make any sense to me. It was like, not only are we shutting down the library, we're getting rid of the librarian position. They cut essentially all the extracurricular classes and activities that they were doing And everything that was talked about moving forward was just remediation and test prep and testing and all of the new assessments 
that we were gearing up to give that were like being mandated by the city or being mandated by the district. It just felt so disheartening. For Selena, this is personal, obviously. She devoted countless hours to trying to get the new library space off the ground. But what really rankles is what she sees as the short-sightedness of decision-makers, those at her former school and at every level above them. If there was ever a time for us to have libraries and there was ever a time for us to promote media literacy and digital literacy, it's now with like in the midst of like this culture war that we're stuck in education and with what's happening with CRT and these tax on anti-racist teaching and, you know, culturally responsive um, pedagogy or and, and it just It's like if we ever need libraries and librarians and more books and more reading and an emphasis on not foundational literacy skills, like, yes, that's important. But but like right now, like our libraries across the board in this country are being threatened, like curriculum is being threatened. Books are being pulled from school. Like we're we're literally like seeing places that are about to do book burnings. The dissonance, it just felt like a lot of the decisions. And I felt like this since the pandemic, a lot of the decisions that the district is making or the the mayor is making, you know, all these kind of higher levels just seem so disconnected from what the reality is, like from what the reality is in the classroom, from what it is in the lives of, of students and families and teachers, and also just like across the country. It just seems like they're operating in kind of this bubble. So what happened? How did we end up going so quickly from a moment of possibility to a retrenchment of the sort of data-driven vision for schools that finally seemed to be on the wane? this idea of learning loss, that narrative really took a hold. And I don't think there was necessarily a really strong counter to that. It, it, it just became this constant emphasis put on the students. They don't remember anything. They're years behind. They are going to be a complete failure academically. And I think that that becomes so pervasive that any hope for getting out of this model of like test prep and testing and high stakes tests and accountability and, and data, any hope of getting out of that just, it, I, I think it just dissipated because everybody was so concerned with, you know, quote unquote, learning loss that we had to not only did we have to kind of go back to the original model, it's almost as if we have to double down in it. So now like, we don't just need our, you know, our typical kind of systems for accountability or testing. Now we need even like, we need to really expand this. And that was just, I just don't think it makes any sense, especially considering the trauma that students have sustained, the need that they have for, you know, social emotional support and and community. Uh, It really seems like we're just adding on to the harm. A quick update on Selena's situation. She handed in her resignation in August, and since then, she's been writing curriculum and designing instructional experiences. She loves it. But being away from the classroom has also given her an opportunity to reflect on education more broadly and what the point of it is. We don't have a real sense of what public education means for this country. I think if you were to ask people what the narrative of public education is or or what the hope or the vision for the future of it is, I think that people would say that they knew or felt like that does exist. But I think if we really, you know, peel back the layers, I don't think we necessarily have a very strong vision for that. And I think that the opposing side, in a sense, has created a really strong narrative about public education. 
it's indoctrination and it's, you know, these leftist radical kind of Marxist teachers really forcing students into these, you know, super liberal ideologies that are destroying, you know, the fabric of America and, you know, true traditional American values. And I think that a lot of people have recently really latched onto that. And I don't think that there's been a really good pushback against that narrative. And I, I feel like for me, one of the things that we can start doing is really cultivating a sense of like, what does public education mean to us? What does education in general mean to us? What is the importance of that? In other words, by defining what schools do in terms of a set of narrow metrics, we've lost the larger thread about the purpose of public education. When we just double down on those ideas, what we kind of get are this idea of education as a place to just make consumers almost and to kind of create children who are like workers, essentially. We need to create a system where students can really have the ability not only to do well in a more like professional sense or or social economic sense, but I think also to create a space that really, I think, transforms and pushes us to, to think in a more humane manner and to really like set the foundation for, for students to become young adults and adults that really want to see like an equitable, just society. Next up, we're headed north to Derry, New Hampshire, which, as you may recall, is home to Misty Crompton. Let me get you caught up. Last year, she was awarded a sabbatical in recognition of her exceptional teaching. She spent that time exploring how to make educational equity a reality for students in New Hampshire, and that put her in the crosshairs of local politicians who made Misty the poster teacher for radicalism in the schools. So let's start with the good news. Misty is back in the classroom. It's been wonderful um, to be back in many ways for me because that's what I'm used to in my in my daily life is being around you know my colleagues and being around students and the sort of the wacky life of middle school and I did miss it quite a bit so I feel a little bit more myself and a little more at home being back in the classroom and and it's been wonderful I had to get used to you know life teaching with a mask and getting students every few seconds to think about their masks as well. So that's been kind of different. And she recently had a chance to share with her local school board and members of the public what it was that she spent the last year doing. Thank you so much for letting me um, come and, you know, talk to you a little bit about uh, the sabbatical. And I, and I just want to thank, you know, Mr. Krieger and thank all of you and the Dairy Cooperative School District you know, for believing in me and allowing me this opportunity um, with the Krista McAuliffe sabbatical. Um, I was the recipient in 2021, and it really allowed me to explore professional ideas in a really special way, like beyond the main school experience that I've had here in Derry. You know, when I came here in 2000, um, you know, I've been, I've been in the same school, and it's my home, but sometimes you need to leave the nest a little bit <laughs> and have that new experience. Um, so I was very fortunate and also have to absolutely thank the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation for paying my salary um, for one year um, as part of the award um, so that I could go on an official leave of absence and explore these professional ideas, you know, in a very flexible and um, exciting way, you know, that you're not always um, able to do. So thank you to um, everybody um, you know, who believed in this enough um, to help me um, promote just schools. 
What followed was kind of an amazing event. Misty gave a great presentation about what it would actually look like if we committed to what she calls a just and joyous education for every kid. Her principal was on hand to talk about the school-level work that's happening to better support students. And then some real-life students talked about what middle school looks like through their eyes and what they think needs to change. It was important for people to remember that these are real students who are affected by our policies and our practices. And this is why it's so important to myself and to other educators, you know, that we are doing the right things and that we are examining those practices. So I love that the students just reminded people like, hey, we're here and this is our world. And, you know, this is a formative time and we notice what's happening and we're feeling it and we're impacted by it. So I I did think it was great to bring it back to the students and just remind folks what we're here to do and what we're talking about and why we're talking about it and get that sort of raw reminder that this is their life (laughs) and, and reality. Then some local adults weighed in. The state rep we met in our previous episode, who seemed to imply that Misty was somehow connected to the Cambodian genocide, well, she was back. Then there was this gentleman. Uh, Thank you to Ms. Crompton for her presentation. Uh, What I do want to mention is that uh, in the meeting minutes um, for for the meeting of uh, the curriculum subcommittee meeting on April 5th of this year regarding Ms. Crompton's sabbatical, It notes a website address for Communities for Just Schools Fund. And if you look at that website, uh, it talks a lot about funding. Um, However, the site does then link to www.teachingforchange.org, which that, uh, which Teaching for Change is immersed in critical race theory. Uh, They also have links to uh, the Zinn Project, Uh, Howard Zinn, uh, social studies books are in many of our uh, many schools. I don't think they're in our schools specifically, but uh, in our uh, across our country, uh, these books are full of bias towards socialisms and our socialism and activism. Uh, to me, the presentation didn't implement uh, CRT or does not implant CRT into our schools. Um, but uh, my opinion, and it's my opinion, uh, it does open the door for potential um, movement down the road. It would be funny. Except that it's not funny. Misty has been on the receiving end of this campaign for nine months now, and it's starting to feel a little personal. You know, one of the legislators who came again and again sort of said, this isn't personal. (laughs) But it is, you know, obviously felt a little personal, you know, when my name was being used, my sabbaticals being used, where questions were continually coming up about and insinuations that I was somehow using taxpayer dollars to just take a year off to pontificate about history and how I could, you know, indoctrinate students. And it, it's it's unfortunate that a simple email couldn't have been shot into my inbox. You know, I would have been happy to answer questions. I would have been happy to get together if there was a real genuine concern about my work, but I don't think it was there. You know, I didn't feel that at all. I think it was to just showcase this agenda that they had. And it's unfortunate that, you know, the students and that myself and that my district was used in that circus (laughs) that ended up um, making its way to our town. 
Misty says that what she finds most frustrating about all of this is that the work of transforming the climate and culture of schools so that they can better meet the needs of kids is already hard enough. There is so much to do. And we have already in our public schools this wonderful opportunity and structure with such an amazing diversity to really make these changes and these strides and and to see it kind of get kicked back you know, for these kind of bizarre political fights, you know, that really don't have anything to do with what we're really facing day in and day out. This is this is the reality of our world. And to to see people spend so much time talking about things that just aren't really a, a part of it. And to see even sometimes straight up lies printed. I understand sometimes there's misconceptions, but sometimes it was just complete fabrication. Just adds so much more stress to, you know, all of us trying to do what's best for our our district and our school environment. So Jack, I can imagine as you've been sort of hanging back, listening to these teachers tell these stories that are, yes, a little bit distressing, but also in other ways inspiring. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, what do I possibly have to add? I'm just an education historian. You're exactly right, Jennifer, particularly with that Demunizing qualifier there, uh, just yes. And I, I've just been sitting around wondering, uh, maybe I can come up with a Lincoln quote that would inspire people. Uh, I, I'm out of options here. Well, good news. I've got something for you, Jack. So it turns out that one of the state reps who's been very involved in this almost crusade to paint Misty Crompton, who we just heard from, as, you know, sort of single-handedly ushering indoctrination into New Hampshire's schools, well, that state rep was one of the co-sponsors for a proposed teacher loyalty act in New Hampshire that got a lot of attention. And I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about what, like, what isn't a loyal oath? Where does it come from? Where, you know, when have we seen this before? (laughs) Well, we've seen it a lot before historically. uh, And there are some obvious cases uh, where we could draw a parallel between the past and the present. And the most obvious of those is the Cold War. We've been here before on our show where we have talked about the uh, sort of eerie echo that we are experiencing today of the Cold War era uh, with regard to claims being made about teachers and their efforts to indoctrinate young people and the kinds of actions, protective actions, that need to be taken to ensure that teachers don't indoctrinate young people. Uh, So we certainly saw loyalty oaths in the 1950s and 60s, both at the K-12 level and in higher education. So, um, you know, maybe the most notable of those would be the Levering Act in California, um, and that swept in uh, all public employees, basically classifying them as civil defense workers. Um, And then there are even earlier uh, similarly, you know, anti-communist efforts, uh, but earlier loyalty oaths that arose during the first Red Scare. So in the 1920s and 30s, there were loyalty oaths that were being proposed in a number of states. And actually, um, the American Association of University Professors weighed in on this. Um, You know, obviously, they were staunchly in favor of academic freedom. And I actually um, have handy 
uh, a piece. Imagine that. Written by uh, Alexander Gary uh, from 1937. So he opens this piece saying that teachers occupy a position of what he calls transcendent importance. And that as a result of that, uh, they've been singled out by a measure designed to protect our youth from disloyalty and distorted ideas. I mean, talk about ripped straight from today's headlines. Um, We can see that, you know, 90 years ago, we were having this same discussion. You can go back further, right, to uh, the Reconstruction period when uh, loyalty to the Union was something uh, that was proposed in a number of states, right? That um, teachers and others would have to swear loyalty uh, to the Constitution, essentially. And that's something that still happens lots of places. So um, one of the things to remember here is that this is not new. And as a result, maybe we don't need to really freak out about it, that this is a part of the kind of play acting of patriotism that we continue to engage in decade after decade in the United States. At the same time, right, it's not something that we see all the time. We see it in these periods where there is polarization and we see it in periods when the teaching profession is particularly under fire. uh, And that's not something that we should take lightly. Well, one of the funny, not funny things about what's been happening in New Hampshire is that when these state reps are put on the spot about why this sort of mega loyalty oath is needed. It's actually a a refresh of one that was rolled out in the 40s. They end up revealing how questionable their own knowledge of history is. And I'm guessing that that's probably also a theme that we could find if we went back in the time machine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, first of all, uh, rarely, if ever, do you hear them referencing prior loyalty oaths, right? That would be a a real sort of meta commentary there if they were able to incorporate that. You know, this is something that we've always done. But in addition to that, we can also look at the kind of distorted understanding of history that some of these purported defenders of American history have, right? When you listen to them or you read what they have said about, let's say, slavery uh, or racism or the founding of the United States or who had the franchise during which decade. It reveals an idealized understanding of America's past, which is not congruent with the historical record. Back to our tour, we're headed next to Ankeny, Iowa. You may remember that Ankeny is home to social studies teacher Nick Covington. When we met up with Nick last spring, let's just say that things were not going well. At one point, some conservative parents were trying to get him fired. And Nick says that all of that really took a toll. In fact, when the school year ended, Nick packed up his things with the expectation that he wasn't coming back. But he returned, and things have actually been going a lot better. Personally, I'm in a better position than I have been in a really long time. I think despite, say, the political setbacks and, and things that have happened in my district, having, having kind of gotten past the initial shock of uh, what happened last spring, now I, I think I'm being less reactive to it and actually kind of being proactive in being able to think about what I'm going to teach, um, how I'm going to teach it. So there's kind of like no surprises on that front. I think then too, just understanding that I kind of have 
it's not necessarily having one foot out the door, but um, it's knowing that if I'm going to, if I do end up leaving for these political reasons, it's going to be uh, on my terms. So, <laughs> so I'm going to step up and take that direct action. That's going to, you know, lead to a conversation, even if that has consequences. I think, you know, you, you call that good trouble or call that what you will, but um, I think I'm trying to be a little bit more proactive about that this time around. That, by the way, does not mean that Ankeny is any less polarized. Ankeny has been a little microcosm of what's been taking place across the country as far as the attack on on books prominently around you know LGBTQ youth, issues around gender and sexuality more broadly, issues of race. It was the case that a couple of books in my district came under fire. And I think kind of seeing how I was in the crosshairs prior to this and wanting to maybe stand in solidarity and support, not just with our teacher librarians and the people in our system who were coming under the eye of not just the same individuals, but the same kind of groups that I was last spring. But we actually had some students stand up for that as well. And that kind of came to a head at a school board meeting fairly recently where the students went to speak out in support of you know these so-called controversial books. And these were students who openly identified you know as, as being members of the the queer community um, as being LGBTQ and kudos to them for for being out and open and, and, and speaking with the school board about those issues. In a sign at the Times, those students got a response that was, well, less than supportive from one audience member, a gentleman who is very involved with a local QAnon group. So Nick stepped in. So I won't repeat what what he said to me in that moment, but it was kind of shocking to the people around. And when I told him maybe he should take those comments outside, I think he interpreted that as let's me and you maybe take this outside. And so I think he was ready to go out into like the parking lot and fight me. Well, I told him, well, why don't you go ahead and go first? And he got up and get ready to go. And that's when the school board president kind of shut things down and, and redirected the whole conversation. But yeah, that, that was something, you know, that I had not necessarily learned the lesson, but being able to apply that lens um, of, I don't know, physical solidarity, I suppose. Here, here I am, a six foot four, 200 pound, big white guy with a beard, and being able to stand in physical solidarity with vulnerable students uh, against people who not only don't have kind things to say, but also, you know, want to threaten their physical space as well. So I think using kind of that prominence and using my status and my stature in, in more deliberate ways, I think is, is a pretty, is, has been a pretty effective approach so far this year. A little more context on what's been happening in Ankeny. The recent school board elections were hotly contested and conservative candidates swept. Their first order of business, striking down the mask mandate in the schools. They got four school board members now who are virulently anti-mask. Is that an ironic thing to say? But they're virulently anti-mask. They effectively repealed our mask mandate at their first board meeting earlier this month. And then they tackled the issue of those book bannings. So I think what has been really interesting, though, and I felt this in the room at that school board meeting, was you know on the campaign trail leading up to election day, the rhetoric got so hot and so fiery and so heated about these books in particular, about masks. You had state senators saying that teachers should be put in jail for child pornography, that the teacher librarians and admin who keep these things on their shelves should, you know, watch their backs and all those kinds of things. And then after the election, once they effectively, you know, got that power, the the rhetoric kind of vanished. I mean, there's pockets of angry people who are still there, but I think our hope 
hope now is now that they're bought into the institution or kind of bound by the rules and policies and have to deal with things like school board boundaries and budgets, now that they've gotten masks and books out of the way, I don't know what they're going to do for you know the next two years or three years or four years, whatever, however long they plan on serving on the board, I suppose. So I guess there's, there's a ray of hope there is that now that they're bound by those institutional sort of boundaries, maybe we'll kind of see the rhetoric calm down and cool down a little bit. Now, if you remember our previous encounter with Nick, it was a unit that he taught on white nationalism in his AP European history course that got him into so much trouble last spring. Well, he's getting ready to teach that class again at a time when teachers in Iowa and elsewhere are being subjected to incredible levels of scrutiny. Iowa, like many states, now has an education gag order on the books, prohibiting teachers from discussing quote-unquote divisive concepts. How that will play out in Nick's class He doesn't know yet, but he says that his experience last year has left him better prepared to deal with whatever comes his way. Last semester, what happened was just such a shock because for me, it came out of nowhere. These were things that I had had lesson plans and units built around going on several years. I felt like I had given students and parents a heads up that this is what was going to be happening. I didn't get any feedback or pushback until it happened later anonymously and then kind of took over everything else as as it kind of snowballed as the semester progressed. We didn't have a system in place on how to address these kinds of things. So it it was chaos and it was stress and it was frustration and it made me feel like I, I didn't know what or how to teach anymore without you know having having a magnifying glass um, put on on me and my professional life and now I think I'm so situated that I kind of understand more how that works and what that looks like and again kind of embracing that role of kind of that risk take professional risk taker I guess if you will to be able to say, okay, I'm in a position in my career, a position in my stature and in my status where that's a risk that I can take. That's a conversation I can have. And if they want to say that it violates some kind of policy or law or whatever, maybe I'm comfortable being the test case on that, but we'll have to let it play out as, as we go. What surprised me most talking to Nick was just how hopeful he sounded. Perhaps it was because I caught him on the first day of winter break, but Nick says that a big part of his optimism comes from finding a role for himself at a time when schools, teachers, and students are under attack. Take that recent school board meeting where gay and lesbian students spoke out against book banning. I had staff in the building. I had students. I had a student's parents get in touch with me and be like, thank you so much for like standing up for, for, for my kid, you know, for standing up for these students and these issues. And it really just impressed upon me again, like there's so many people who are scared and I think I'm just so done being scared and I'll act and I can take the heat and I can maybe be a front for some things that then allow people behind the scenes to feel a little bit more safe, to feel like what they do in their classroom, you know, isn't quite under attack because the attention is focused on me and I can kind of be that lightning rod and and I can kind of be okay with it. Even if, even if (laughs) at the end of the day, I gotta, I gotta crack a beer and just, and just relax a little bit. Finally, we're headed to the far northwest corner of Missouri, or Missouri. Jessica, take it away. Hi, my name is Jessica Piper. I am a former English teacher. I worked 16 years teaching American literature, and I'm now running for a house seat, District 1 in northwest Missouri, which is where I am right now. 
I live in a farmhouse right on the edge of a bean field, raising kids and chickens and hogs um, on our five acres, which is a really small plot of land to do that. We're basically subsistence farmers, but we love it. I love everything about this community and everything about where I am. That's right. Jessica is not teaching anymore. When we first met up with her last year, she was agonizing about how she would be able to continue to teach her brand of American literature informed by history, given that Missouri legislators were trying to ban teachers from talking about racism. While last year's bill didn't go anywhere, Jessica says she took a hard look at the state of her state and decided that she needed to make a change. Last year, it didn't go through, but there was a bill saying that teachers couldn't use the words race, racism, oppression, or privilege, which would knock out about a third of my curriculum. Can't talk about the Harlem Renaissance or civil rights without talking about oppression, right? Honestly, it's muzzling teachers and keeping them from saying anything that might make anyone else uncomfortable. I really felt the need to do something bigger than I was doing. And I know teaching, I always felt like was um, the biggest thing I could do with my own life to have a hundred kids each year and give them information that they may not know or teach them literature that they've never heard to change their life through, you know, opening their eyes. But with legislation coming down that we see right now, I knew that that was going to be difficult. And I decided that maybe I should be up in Jeff City. Maybe I should be one of these people creating or actually not creating the for teaching, maybe letting teachers decide uh, what's best for curriculum. By the time you hear this episode, Missouri legislators will be back in action in Jefferson City, or Jeff City as it's referred to, and this session promises to be even more focused on schools than the last one. There's talk of a parents' bill of rights, of expanding the school vouchers that were passed last year, and increasing the number of charter schools. In her rural corner of the state, Jessica has been watching this play out with a rising sense of frustration. Yeah, there's a big push for charters and for school choice. It's one of those words, it's like right to work, where really right to work harms workers. School choice harms public schools. And in rural areas like mine, I live in a town of 480 people. My child is one of 16 kids in her entire fourth grade class. There is zero choice. We're already defunded in Missouri. We're 49th in educational funding. So most of the school funding has to come from property taxes, which is very inequitable, the worst system. So we're already defunded. And now uh, when we start bringing in school choice and charters, that means that my kid doesn't have a choice, but she's not going to have a new textbook or she's not going to be able to go on a field trip. So it's just defunding rural schools more than they already are. There's one more thing you need to know about Jess's corner of the state. Not only is it bright Republican red, but Democrats barely run candidates anymore. We usually don't have a candidate on the ballot here uh, running as a Democrat. So this is very new for anybody. They're not used to seeing a Democrat on the ballot or even thinking about voting for a Democrat. I am not represented by any Democrat from my sheriff all the way up to my senators. Nobody. So it's different. I'm just trying to bring the message back that we do have a really nice state representative. He's a very friendly man. But when it comes to education, uh, sometimes all those people that are super friendly are actually voting against our kids. When I'm talking to people who may vote for me, 
I just remind them I'm a teacher. I understand what funding looks like. I understand what defunding looks like. And I also know that state legislators aren't supposed to be going to Board of Education meetings, that this is supposed to be local issues. And as a state representative, I wouldn't show up to your Board of Education meeting unless, you know, you you wanted me to celebrate something with you. But they have no business, no business at all going in and talking about curriculum. That is a local issue. A lot of what Jessica is talking to voters about these days are COVID safety protocols and how politicized they've been by elected officials in Missouri. There's some really difficult things going on in Missouri as far as masking. We have a attorney general who has filed suit against schools, forcing them to remove mask mandates. And when that happened, actually, there's a little school that's in my district, just a few miles down the road. They had to shut the school down on December 14th. They're not coming back until January because there are not enough healthy teachers to teach them. So these people on high that are sitting in offices in Jeff City don't realize what happened. There's real world consequences. And now these kids, and it's not like they're going virtual. They're not going to school. They're sitting in front of a TV. To top that off, our state treasurer is saying that if schools are not complying with the no mask issue, they're going to be defunded further. He's going to strip them of bonds that they need to fund their schools. I tell you, I, I say this all the time, but it feels like living in a straitjacket here. Like you can't, we can't crawl out of, of the mess that they're making and our poor schools are just going under. Jessica is the first to admit that she has an uphill battle ahead of her. So I had to ask, is there anything that the vast Have You Heard listening audience can do to help? And great news, there is. I would love for your listeners to support me. I am a true grassroots progressive Democrat living in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. But Every time you make a contribution to my campaign, you're helping me. You're helping me flip a seat, which flips the entire state. So they can find me at jessicapiperformissouri.com. You can find me on Twitter at Piper for the number four, Missouri. And I'm also, I, I love TikTok. So I'm there, Jess Piper Mo at TikTok. <laughs> A huge thanks to our current and former teachers, Selena Carrion, Misty Crompton, Nick Covington, and Jessica Piper for sharing their updated stories with us. Jack and I will be right back to reflect on the year ahead, and we'll be revealing the topic for this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Education reform, which lots of commentators, including your co-hosts, had written off as dead, has come roaring back. To hear us opine, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. So Jack, as people no doubt noticed, um, we took a little time off. Um, we went for the, I think this may be the longest that we've gone uh, in between episodes, well, maybe you were ever. insistent about your spa treatments. <laughs> I was, and I don't know about you, but I really, I really needed a break. the 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 speed at which the bad news just keeps arriving, and this was really like before Omicron, or as my husband insists on calling it, Omicron. Um, <laughs> but this was before even the latest, the latest sort of, you know, slow motion back to school disaster was unfolding. So I I really appreciated having some time to recharge and to also think about what we have coming up in the year ahead. But I also wondered if maybe you could share with listeners the special treat that I got you for Christmas. 
oh, Jennifer, I think of this as the gift that we'll keep on giving all year long. Uh, and it's just a shame that you only sent me two elbow patches because I'm going to have to pick just one of my hooded sweatshirts to affix these elbow patches to. Uh, if I had more, then I could outfit my entire battery of hoodies and T-shirts in elbow patches. I guess the T-shirts would be difficult. I could just affix them to my elbows forever and always be patching. Well, Jennifer... Maybe I should take this opportunity to ask you what you have been plotting for 2022 because I know that you have been. You've been scheming. You've been generating plans. And as is so often the case, I have been simply sitting back in fear that you are going to drop an episode on me that I am unprepared uh, to talk about. So maybe you can share with some of our listeners, as well as with me, what's on the slate for 2022. Nothing to fear, Jack. The list will be arriving in your inbox shortly in the form of a detailed <laughs> memo. Um, in all seriousness, we have, a, we have a great list of episodes coming up. I think this is going to be our best year ever. Um, we get tons of ideas from our listeners, and the ideas just keep getting smarter and smarter. And so that's part of what I'm so excited about. So we have an episode in the works on climate change, how schools are and should be responding to it. We have a, a one on rural schools and all the tension that they're under. And we're going to be talking to the authors of a new book about how charter schools choose students. Well, Jennifer, I'm excited about all of these episodes. As you can tell, I'm leaning in right now, and I do so without fear of ruining the elbows of my garments. Because as you can see, look at that. I show you that, and I show you the other one. I have elbow patches firmly affixed to my outfit right now, uh, and I plan to for all future episodes. If there were ever a case for us uh, to move this to a video production, I think you've just made it. <laughs> well, Jennifer, I know that while you were in extended spa treatments, you were not thinking about the show, and clearly you've used the limited time available uh, in the WePod studio to think up a full slate of 2022 episodes. So I'm guessing that you did not have time to think up a topic for In the Weeds. So maybe we'll just wrap things up here. Oh, contraire, sir. I have a great one. Uh, and this is actually a little different than what we usually do because it's going to require me admitting that I've turned out to be really wrong about something. Oh, I'm so excited for everybody. <laughs> join Patreon immediately. Whatever it costs you, join uh, this conversation, you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to be talking about the sudden return to life in full zombie form of education reform, something that I really didn't see coming. So if this interests you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, sign up to become a supporter. If you throw a couple of dollars our way each month, you get cool extras like a reading list that Jack and I together customize for each episode. And you get to join us in the weeds where today we're going to be talking about various signs that education reform lives on. Well, if you reject the capitalist economy and you quote-unquote pay for things by exchanging your time for someone else's time via a time bank, Jennifer, you're looking at me like maybe people don't understand this. Am I am I dating myself as a, you a, are a someone, someone who 
came of age on the left in the 1990s. Okay, well, well, if you time bank, uh, then you probably aren't going to be able to join the Patreon. And so there are lots of other ways to support the show. And in fact, think of it as a time bank, right? We just gave you approximately 30 to 40 minutes of an episode. And so think of all the ways that you could spend 30 to 40 minutes supporting the show. You could go on and give us a rating and an enthusiastic narrative comment. You could tweet about the show, uh, include our handle at Have You Heard Pod. You could uh, just pick up the phone and call everybody you know and rave about the show. I, there are a lot of phone calls you could have in 30 to 40 minutes. Um, really, the possibilities are, well, they're not endless, uh, but they are multiple. Um, and don't forget, we still have a book out there. Uh, so walk on down or um, or take a bird scooter down to, I guess people who time bank won't have bird scooters, but take it down to your local library and get a wolf at the schoolhouse store. Speaking of endless, I'm here to put you out of your misery, Jack. This is Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider.